Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octonom verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Bahar Alexander is an executive and high-performance coach for life and leadership with an extensive background in cognitive behavioral psychology, performance psychology, organizational psychology, epigenetics, functional medicine, and holistic medicine. She's also a master personal trainer and nutrition, health, and longevity expert. She's also a former competitor, so she knows very much of which she speaks. I love this idea about her personal philosophy, and she says that she believes that the human entity has tremendous untapped potential in both psychology and biology, and what stands in the way of both of these and blunts the ability for us to reach those potentials is our mental models and our beliefs around those models. Her philosophy is to shift your psychology, to shift your physiology, and transform your life. I have known Bahar for many years now, and I have nothing but respect and admiration for her. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been a long time coming. Thank you for being on the show today. Oh, it is my pleasure, Marcus. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. It's very humbling to be here. You've been amazing to watch, and now it is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. It's been a long time coming. We've known each other online for almost six years. You sent me a message when my book first came out. You said, hey, I'm at a bookstore. I'm trying to find your book. And and I was like, thank you so much. Unfortunately, it's I'm an Amazon, you know, only Amazon published author, but that was the beginning. And seeing you, seeing your work, seeing what you've been doing in this this sort of sphere, we were talking before how the world has changed in the last few years, but this realm of coaching and development has changed a lot as well. Some of it may be detrimental. Some of it is is improving in a positive way. And we'll get into all those things and more. Can you explain to us a little bit about what the Alexander Method is? and how that process is, because I love the way that you go through it. And I think it's very robust and there's nothing that really slips through the cracks in the way that you go through things. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, the Alexander Method. I was advised by many marketeers not to do that, not to put my name on my method. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I do things my own way. <laughs> the reason it is called the Alexander Method, it really is, is because it's based on my own personal philosophy. I have a lot of skill sets. I have done a lot of learning and I continue to do so because I truly believe that once you stop learning, you're dead. Yes. So I refer to myself as a salmon. If I stop swimming, there's no life left anymore. So I, yeah. as, as long as I'm learning, I'm living and I'm evolving. So the reason I decided to call it the Alexander Method was that I wanted to bring all of these intensely complex theories and break them down into their minutest details to translate them into language that people really in practical ways could put into practice. 
And what I notice in psychology is that there are a lot of theories and a lot of the self-help books are also based on these theories. But majority of people are the everyday human beings who really just want solutions. Mm-hmm. So rather than accentuating the problem, I focus on the solution and that's my method of working. I always say to my clients, you come to me with whatever problem you have and I have a bag full of solutions for you for every problem you come with. And that really is my mentality and my way of working, my life philosophy, solution-oriented mindset. And that's what the Alexander Method is really based on. It is a method of working, teaches you a process in simplifying how to innovate solutions, create strategies in life or in leadership, whether it is an organizational uh, standpoint or just from a perspective of family organization, being a good parent. You know, nobody gets a manual on that either. So the Alexander Method really focuses on life and leadership for the purpose of elevating the human experience. Uh, We all want to do better. We want to accomplish a lot in life, but we don't really get a manual in what we previously used to call soft skills, and now we call skills. And that's what the Alexander Method does. And that's what's so important because, as you were mentioning with books and even some teachings or some systems, I have noticed because of my hard science background from chiropractic school, you know, physiology, neurology, all these things, I've noticed that a lot of people like to fill in with a lot of fluff. They'll go into a bunch of detail about cortisol, a tremendous amount of detail about sympathetic and parasympathetic and the vagal nerve, which those things are fine. And vagal tone, those things are all important. But the person that's reading that book can Google that stuff if they want. If they want to know more about it, you know, it's like that's really beyond the scope of what we're trying to do. The goal is instead of trying to fill with a bunch of stuff that is not going to be pragmatic and applicable right now, because this person comes to you with a problem. They say, Hey, I'm having this issue. I'm having this problem. I'm trying to lead. I don't have self-leadership or discipline. And now we see where me going through and going on a 15 minute diatribe about another person in history that did something. Those things are fine. And taking historical little snapshots are great, but it's like, can you help this person or not? And then are you willing to invest and them? Are you willing to be present for them? Are you willing to show the fuck up to help them? Because that's what they need more than anything. They don't need somebody to just want to give them platitudes and say, oh, we'll just do this, this, and this. That's not enough. And the thing that I also find is so often if we attach a goal or an intention or an expectation to something that is not true and organic and real to us, it's just going to be this superficial thing that we will eventually fail at. We can't push for an artificial metric. It has to be something that means something for us for that purpose. And that comes back down to what we were talking about, which is self-leadership. Can you explain to me why, and I agree with this entirely, why self-leadership is so important for leadership and then how those things go hand in hand as we move forward to lead others? Absolutely. You know, this is a topic that's, that I'm really passionate about. I'm a, I am an avid practitioner of self-leadership, and I also coach on the topic for one reason and one reason only. We human beings, as soon as we come into the world, we're exposed to all sorts of stimuli, learning concepts. Uh, We advance ourselves through our nervous system, but there comes a point where we need to, for example, know how to eat, how to walk, how to talk, 
put the words together, create a sentence, memorize information, solve mathematical equations. As soon as that first learning phase, which is, you know, really through mimicking and taking on examples has happened, the child will want to become autonomous. An autonomous human being needs to know how to lead themselves. It starts in very minute ways in childhood, but it really is no different than what the adults go through. Just two weeks ago, I was in Saudi Arabia uh, giving a coaching program for a very large oil and gas company. I'm talking to people in their 30s, 40s, respectively, in leadership positions, and we're talking about the same confidence dilemmas that a child would go through in their learning process, thinking it's never good enough. I'm never going to amount to anything uh, because I can't get this done. I'm a, I must not be good at what I do. And what I really love doing is I love to bring all those analogies of self-leadership as a child and translate it into what an adult has to go through when they're in the position of other leadership, because it really is no different. So when we talk about self-leadership, the very first thing that I cover is self-regulation. Do you know how to self-regulate? A child, something happens around them. They're not getting their way. They throw all their toys out of the pram. And then I look at the CEO and the director and they kind of do the same thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I draw from my background in cognitive behavioral uh, psychology, but I most of the work that I do is based on analogies. And I really try to simplify these concepts and really explain to individuals if the self-leadership is not happening in a healthy way, your communication is limited. Your negotiation capacity is limited. Your ability to build trust is limited. Without these three things, how can you possibly leverage leadership? Absolutely. And a child may not be reliant on productivity and team culture and revenue, but trust me, adults are. So self-leadership becomes even more important. And when we learn those subtle principles that, again, we call soft skills, but they really are these skills in self-regulating, self-motivating, self-inspiring, and being able to detect information with awareness, which means bypassing our own biases, which is such a crucial thing. You know, sometimes I ask uh, senior executives, Say, so what do you think happened in this situation? Say, well, I did a lot of introspection on this. And say, wait a minute, where did the introspection come from? Was it based on collecting information, which we call discernment, or was it based on your own personal filters? You get to a point where that kind of discernment, that kind of uh, uh, introspection is no longer enough. Do you have awareness, self-awareness, other awareness, environmental awareness? How much do you know about emotional contagion? So the concept of self-leadership is so incredibly crucial, whether you're leading yourself, going through life, creating a strategy for success as an entrepreneur, as a manager, as a supervisor, whatever it is you go on, it doesn't really matter how many people you're leading, one or a hundred or thousands, the principles are the same. And I'm so passionate about teaching those very fine, refined and simplified details that can truly elevate any human being personally and professionally. And that's so key because, uh, again, when, when I do leadership keynotes, I always say that all leadership begins with self-leadership. Self-leadership it comes from self-mastery. Self-mastery comes from self-knowledge. 
And the gateway to truly know thyself is through adversity, through being able to see and really be cognizant of how are you conducting yourself in the face of this adversity? Because that is the litmus test. The, the way that we conduct ourselves in the face of adversity is an indication of how we will do everything else. So whether that be economic downfall, whether that be a conflict between two people or yourself and somebody else on the team, it's very easy to be fantastic when everything is fantastic. But when we need to lead the most is when everything is going down or when you can feel everybody else in the room, like you said, have that emotional intelligence to kind of take a barometer and say, man, I can feel that right now everybody is downtrodden or they don't believe in this. And that's when we have to step up. We don't have to cheerlead, but we can say, listen, there's a bunch of different ways to do it too. And that self-leadership and that self-knowledge helps us figure out how we want to lead. Because just like a love language, there are leadership styles that are different. Some people think that a leader or they believe as a leader that we have to be out there jumping up and down, screaming and yelling all the time. And that's fine if that's what you feel that a leader should be. But if we don't have the emotional intelligence to see that everybody in the room, we, we talk about examples. I was speaking at a company in 2019 in person and the CEO came out and he was introducing me, but he was also talking about, because it was this, the beginning of the year. And he said, I just want you guys to know that the numbers that we did last year are amazing. And everybody's, you know, yeah. And he said, but this year we're going to triple those numbers. <laughs> right. And so I saw half of the room give the look that you gave, which was, uh, uh, um, how and the sales team is just like yeah because they're going crazy because of course of course and so he didn't understand that the salespeople are like we're willing to run through a wall to make this happen which is fine because their commission many times is attached to that but in the process of doing that what does that do that encourages them to cut corners to maybe promise a little more to maybe insinuate that there's a little less price and all these different things so when they do that they're handing this huge problem to operations to fulfillment to other people on the other side of the equation that are like i had this big pile of garbage in front of me and you're asking me to polish it make it look better and do it faster than we did before oh and do it at 20 percent less than what we did before so that they can close the deal yes. and when he did that he didn't understand exactly so when i got up i i did not put him on the spot because i knew that wasn't the time to do it no but I did follow up and say, listen, the way that we can get to these ideas is to understand that we're on the same page. This is the mission. And frankly, I know that the sales team, you guys are killers. And they're like, yeah. and I was like, but this side <laughs> of the equation, what we need to do is we need to make all of our operating procedures, even our business model, look obsolete by comparison to get us to a place so that now we can believe that we can get there because they were already working their faces off just to get to that place, Absolutely. just to hit this metric. And if it's something they don't believe in, or if it feels like they're doing a lot of the grunt work and somebody else is getting all of the reward and frankly, glamour behind that, yeah. then what does that do? That unintentionally and unnecessarily breeds resentment, friction, and now it's us against them. And if they're fighting horizontally against one another, they cannot go vertically up. They cannot go up to, to serve what needs to happen. And if you don't feel that that's true, if you're listening to Bahar and I, and you're like, that doesn't matter. I guarantee that your client or the product or the service that you create coming from that place, that origin will suffer. Absolutely. And if you can't feel it, the client can, and they may not be able to put their finger on it, but they can say, you know, something feels different or it feels like there's tension here. It feels like there's something that's going on. I would rather give my money to some other place where even if it's even more money, 
I feel better about it. I want to support them. I want to feel like this whenever I see that statement hit my debit card or whatever it is. So by understanding all of those things, now we can get to the causation. And then I took the CEO to the side afterwards. I showed him what happened, like again, in, in a closed environment, but I explained to him and I said, so how does that make the operations feel? Yeah. And you could just see it wash all over his face. And he was like, oh my God. So by the time we were done with all the training at the end of it, he came back. I hope he thanks you for that. He 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 said, <laughs> you doing that one thing was worth the price of you coming out. And I was like, yeah. Good. And so that saved them. And notwithstanding that year, they had their best year ever. It wasn't quite triple, but they did it in a way that was sustainable. They were much more efficient. And again, instead of trying to attach to these old ideologies, these old patterns that worked before, that's fine. But as we know, what got you there will not get you to the next stage. That's it. So it's like that worked before, but if it's not sustainable, what do we have to do? And so that's why doing what you're talking about where we talk about the psychology, we talk about the neurology of this is the pattern, this is the internal dialogue, this is the narrative. And it served me to a certain extent, but in a lot of ways, it holds us back. In a lot of ways, if we continue to perpetuate that thing, now it's no longer benefiting us to where we can become the person that we're hoping to become in the process of reaching our next goal or the next end result. Absolutely, because the ultimate goal of every leader is actually twofold. Because everything else is the cherry on the top and it would just happen by default. And these two things are building trust and creating engagement. Because what are you if you don't have a following? You're just the lead. There is Mm -hmm. a distinct difference between a lead and a leader. A leader is someone they actually want to follow. Why would they want to follow you if you're not inspiring them and building trust with them? Why would they want to follow you if they feel like you're not engaging them? You tell them they need to do three times better than what they did last year. And last year, they made it by the hairs on their bums. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So that means you are detached from their psychology. You are not really feeling the room. You You don't have an awareness of, we have different psychologists we're working with. And that's really beautiful. And I really think this actually comes down to another major problem we have nowadays in leadership. And that is the lack of understanding about what inclusivity really means. Inclusivity is not just about including different genders. It's not just about including different nationalities, different colors. It's about including different psychologies, introverts, extroverts, innovatives, you know, salespeople, negotiators, feelers, intuitives. We want to have the consciousness combined to create a bona fide leadership, an industry that really does make its mark in the world and has the same power to evolve with times. So it really is crucial to have those conversations, trust and engagement, trust and engagement, which really trickles down to communication, to building communities, setting up culture for success, creating conscious leadership within the different levels. Because let's say this leader really had his fingers on the pulse and could communicate with clarity. Listen, you all did an amazing job. You put a lot of effort into it. We got some great outcomes. And this year, what we're going to do is we're going to put even more effort in there. We're going to grow ourselves. We're going to advance ourselves, develop ourselves. But let's say he has an executive team that doesn't quite speak the same language. Or maybe the executive team does, but the division heads below them don't really speak the same lingo. 
So what I distinctly notice in leadership is that there needs to be a conversation around re-education. Because here's the thing, when a child learns how to take steps, do we stop teaching them how to walk? No, because that child cannot run. The child cannot sprint. We want to address personal evolution, not just through a strategy, but also through intuitive growth, which means you got here, are you done? And if you are done, where's your growth mindset? And if there is no growth mindset, there is no continuous learning. So leadership needs to be addressed with the same mentality, that there needs to be a re-education continuously to support our leaders to keep doing the right work, really making an impact, and then have that trickle-down effect from leadership, from the top leadership, so we can actually impact an industry on all levels. Everybody should be getting the same education, of course, with their own diversified psychology addressing it, because not everyone is meant to be a leader. That's okay, too. But are we leveraging their qualities in an optimized way? And again, that really comes down to understanding that re-education is one of the most important things we do in leadership as well. It's everything. And again, having that nomenclature, having that that common language, that verbiage where everybody understands what this person means when they say this, yeah. this other idea of that inclusivity and being able to have this diversity for those of you that are like, well, you know, I don't need that in my organization. Yes. I would caution you because I have worked with different companies and organizations where they are all cut from a very similar cloth, which is great, but because they don't have these other perspectives, these are blind spots that they're missing out on. And if you don't think that's a big deal, again, I had one company where it was very much this aggressive, let's go make it happen kind of idea. And I love that idea, but they were breeding more of that around them. Yes. And finally they hired somebody that was very different, that was almost diametrically opposed to that, but they were able to find these soft skills. They were able to plug some of these holes and they showed them the glaring deficiency in that area. And when they did that, and when they realized they've been hemorrhaging money that they either could have been using or that they other sales that they could have either renewed or that they could have gotten simply because they had this other person who had that skill set. And finally, that person said, listen, I need to hire two more people with a similar skill set for me. And the verbiage that they use was to help kind of clean up what you guys have done. And that was like the the joke between them. But again, that became very apparent. So again, all these perspectives are important because everybody's going to see something from a different area. Yes. They're going to see it from what their intention is. And this is where I call it this pragmatic empathy, where I have to be able to feel what they're experiencing, or at least be aware of what their perspective is. If I'm yelling at them and saying, we have to push harder. And in their mind, they're like, first of all, I don't like you yelling at me. Or Second of all, they're like, I am pushing harder. Other people on the team are not pushing harder and you should be addressing them. So now there's all these like idiosyncratic things that if we can be very attention oriented to those things, now we can serve them. We can take care of those areas that used to be friction and we can actually turn it into traction because now we can turn that into an advantage. But again, until we're willing to do that and as a leader, until we have trust, until we can actually lead ourselves. Again, nobody's going to want to follow us. We can tell them all day and just bark orders. But if when we say that we leave the room and they're like, yeah, it's easy for him to say, or this guy's not even in here. You know, this guy's got more days off than Santa Claus. (laughs) That it's hard for us to really build that kind of trust and consistency. 
that's absolutely true. Because if you're really evolving as a leader, you're really taking yourself past the title. Oh, yeah. I love how John C. Maxwell talks about this, uh, the five-level leadership. He talks about, you know, what are you? Level one, you're just a title. Level two, they like you. They follow you. Level three, you're going to have to do something more. You're going to have to bring in results. Level four, are you duplicating yourself? Yes. Are you truly growing other people? Or are you so scared that somebody's going to steal your piece of cheese yeah. That you just empire build and you hog information and you micromanage and all of that. Well, if you want to evolve as a person, you have to maximize your skill sets. If you want to evolve as a leader, you're going to have to do the same thing. What got you to level one is not going to get you to level four. And if you want level four that you need to, then you need to grow and evolve. So focusing on, as we talked about, we cannot hammer this home enough, self-leadership, so incredibly important. It really is absolutely crucial because it's that self-leadership that takes you from level one to level two, from level two to level three, from level three to level four, and then it can get you to whatever you want to do. Because once you get to level four leadership, you don't have to stick with the industry you're in. You don't have to worry about your job security. You can go anywhere and succeed. And that's also something we really need to talk about these days because the professional industry is not what it used to be. People go into a company, stay there for, for 45 years and retire through the same company. One of the dilemmas is that they get let go off because some industries are still very much in the dinosaur years and they think that cutting off jobs, shrinking the job availability within a company is a good idea, but we know that's not the best way to go. You lose a lot of trust with your employees, of course, yes. but let's say that happens. If you know how to self-lead and you have taken through yourself through the evolution of becoming a fourth level leader, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you because you're always going to land on your feet and you're always going to be making an impact. And if legacy is something you're worried about, you never have to worry about that because you're going to be making that legacy by growing people. And that's, again, knowing yourself, really being self-aware. And I really love what you just said. You said uh, this individual was maybe listening, but he wasn't detecting the room was maybe he wasn't picking up on the needs of the people sitting in front of him. One group, super excited. They're salespeople, highly extroverts. Yes. <laughs> they get yes. super excited on endorphins. You know, they just, that song and dance like dolphins gets them excited. Whereas the other part that, you know, does the innovative thinking, strategic planning, and coming up with concepts to, you know, make negotiations successful, that part is not going to respond to the same language, the same dialogue. So if this person has the ability to not just think from his own perspective, but ask, how do you see it? How do you experience it? What are you going through? What are your challenges? But what I see quite often lately is that leaders are really self-absorbed. They're just thinking about themselves. How am I experiencing this? What, I, what do I think is right? And then I'm going to include everyone. Well, that's not inclusive leadership anymore. You're not involving people who have brilliant ideas sometimes. They yes. really do. They just, they need to have that space to be able to express themselves. So again, when you're a conscious leader, you get to do stuff like that and then grow exponentially. That's the thing. And then as you were mentioning also, leaders creating more leaders 
how many people do we know that are founders, co-founders of the company, their CEO, they don't really think about visionary or implementation necessarily at that point. They get something, it gets tracked, they hire more people because they can't keep up with the work. But in their mind, they don't do that shift. Jerry Colonna says it's taking the CEO seat. Yeah. It's actually saying, listen, because to to everybody around you, yeah, they just see you as the person that hired them. And if you're operating kind of at the ground level with them all the time, that's great for camaraderie. But maybe when you tell them to do something that's difficult or when you try to address a, an issue, that's harder. So we have to put ourselves in that position to where now that person is in this place where they say, listen, I have to be aware of these areas that I'm not good at. And again, if it comes down to micromanaging, that's that's about what? That's about a power grab. That's a person that's more concerned about their ego. And frankly, if you're paying somebody a quarter of a million dollars to do a job, especially like in a C-suite executive position, yeah. and now you're the bottleneck all the time, what are you doing? You're wasting money. Like Our job is, as CEOs, as leaders, our job is not to come up with all the right answers. No. Our job is to find the people, to ask them so that we can find the right answers from our people. And now together, we all come up with a solution. Everybody feels validated. Everybody has buy-in for what we're doing. Everybody's on the same track. And frankly, if we're leading from the top, I shouldn't have the ability or the bandwidth to go down and look at the like incremental things that are going on. I should be trusting that, again, middle management, the people that are leading on the ground, the people that are actually in the field doing these things, that they should be doing it. If if I have the time to know every single thing of minutia of what's going on, then that means I'm not looking up and out. I'm looking down. I'm in the weeds. And many CEOs, especially if they're coming up from that position, it's more convenient. It's more comfortable for them to just bury their head in the weeds and do this thing because they're good at it. They've done it longer than other people. They feel validated. That's what got them there. Absolutely. But again, that's not necessarily what we need to keep going. If you just want to hire another person to do that job, that's what you should do. And now you have to, again, that self-leadership, you have to push yourself. And you have this incredible background from athletics, from being a competitor, from training other competitors. And I feel that that is so important because that's where my background came from, from training martial arts, from coaching fighters and other martial artists, teaching martial arts your whole life. And that analogy of one teach to learn absolutely comes into play, especially in this realm, because when you're coaching that person and you're pushing them and you're challenging them and you're making them uncomfortable and you're calling them on their bullshit, I've been there. So when I feel that and I feel that that's what they're getting, now I'm like, I know exactly what they're feeling right now. They're either feeling disgruntled, like, fuck this guy. I don't need this guy in my face. Or this is too hard. I don't want to do this. And now if I can get inside their mind and say, listen, when I was in that place, I was thinking, fuck this guy. I don't want to do this. This is hard. (laughs) This is uncomfortable. He doesn't know what it's like to feel like to be me. And now we can air that. Now we can do that kind of straw man idea of voicing that for them. And then once you've done that, now I've given them permission to voice that feeling, that fear, that desired outcome. And now we can address it from a place that's very much robust and practical for the situation. And if we get down to the, the real bare issue of what it is, that's the goal. And that's why, again, speaking from the place that you have where you are the, the person that's, that's trying to learn, you are the person that's teaching the person that's trying to learn, you are the person who's learning to teach the person who's trying to learn. Now we have this 360 degree view where now we can understand all these different levels of what's happening, what's being said, what's not being said, what's being said, what's not being heard. 
all these things. So that's that is so true. I I love what you just said because it reminds me of the process of being a soloist and being a conductor. Mm. Mm. You're a soloist. You're just focused on yourself. You know, you got your violin or whatever your uh, musical tool is. That's your favorite. You're you know you're just doing your own thing. You're only focused on your own performance. But once you go through that evolution that you become a conductor, you cannot just be focused on yourself. A conductor is not just conducting themselves. They're conducting a whole group of musicians. As I mentioned before, one of the most important things a leader does is build trust. Conductor does the same thing. If the musicians don't trust the conductor, they're not going to follow. They're not going to follow a music, but then there's going to be a lot of practice, a lot of mistakes happening because they somehow feel like the trust, the rapport is not built. So this conductor has a responsibility to build trust because once they do, the others will comply too, because trust is like a bridge and you can simultaneously walk on it and meet halfway and then maybe across to the other direction and it becomes a loop. You get to come back again. So this, once you create this loop of connection, you give trust, they build trust, you build trust, they give trust. And before you know it, you have this robust foundation where negotiation happens with ease. Conflicts are reduced to the minimum. How do you create productivity? Reduce conflict know how to speak to people and really involve them, build that connection on affiliation, create social proof, you know, use some of those tools of negotiation because it really doesn't matter whether you're sitting across this professional table with stakeholders that are external or you're sitting across from one of your executive team members, you're trying to convince to see it from your perspective. You're still selling an idea, you're negotiating, you're leveraging. Build trust before you attempt that. And again, not going to the weeds is exceptionally important, but there are moments where you need to, in empathy, like Brene Brown says, get to their level. Yes. And you can only build that trust when you get to their level. And I really emphasize this with leaders as well, because a lot of the times, employees, people who report to you, they're worried that you're stealing their ideas. They're worried that you're taking all their hard work and you're presenting it on your own and you're taking all the credit. But wait a minute, actually, it is your job to produce the product and have your leader take it and present it. But something is missing here. If there is no trust, the person believes you're stealing their ideas. But when there is trust, they're proud. They feel honored that you are taking their work and you're presenting that. So this trust thing, this engagement thing that we're working on, this really mindset of inclusivity, including different psychologies and really creating dialogue to build that foundation for trust, it is so profound. It affects the bottom line. Yes, we're dealing with people and we really want to focus on people. But at the end of the day, you also want to bring in the numbers. Focus on trust. The numbers will come. Yes. Because when people trust you, they will give their work to you. They'll say, you go, you go present this and let's win together because it's not you against me. We're on the same team. We're working towards the same mission. And again, if a leader is not self-aware, they're not going to be able to create that kind of trust because they don't know, they cannot speak from the other person's psychology. They have not advanced their ability to coach 
and negotiate with power with the other person to get the trust built and create a foundation for that negotiation. It's everything. And as that leader, if that person has given us that trust of this idea, if our ego is really in our way, we won't say, well, that's their job. But if I can put my ego in check, even for a second, and when I walk into this presentation and I say, my team and I came up with this, or frankly, this is not me, this is my team. And if you want to highlight a team member, I say, as a matter of fact, this is this is the person, right? Really put the spotlight on them just for a second, even if they're not in the room. And you don't even have to come back and say, hey, by the way, guys, I made sure that I gave everybody credit when I did this. But that alone is going to build a huge amount of genuine trust, genuine fulfillment in that situation. Because again, the end result is fine, but the process is never ending. So if we're just focused on the goal, we work really, really hard. We get to this thing. Now it's over. We have no presence. We don't appreciate it. We don't celebrate it or the people that helped us get to it. And now we say, what's next? What's next? Right? And there is that that's important. But at the same time, how many people do we know that are executives, leaders, high achievers, high performers that work really hard for something, they get there and then they feel unfulfilled? Very true. It feels empty. It feels hollow. Absolutely. And they're like, yeah. why can I not feel, why can I not celebrate things? I just want to go to the next thing. And it comes down to, again, if you can just be present to the process, to the hardship, be present in the face of adversity so that you can learn the lessons. That is so true. So true. If we just try to turn that blind eye and go through it, we're missing a lot. And now what happens? We're bound to repeat it. But when you have that presence with your people or with yourself or with whomever is there with you who helped you get there. Now everybody wins. Everybody celebrates. Now their victory is mine. Your victory is mine. My victory is yours. And we can all go fast. And we don't have to worry about, like you said, all these personalities. Some people on that team want to be validated. How hard is it for us to understand that and give them a little bit of validation? So easy. Right? So easy. And it costs minimal amount of effort and energy when it's done through self-education. Yes. It is so minimally invasive. And we know we're know we talking about energy management, time management within industries, within commun- you know, uh, professional communities. It's one of the biggest problems that uh, you know, comes up in coaching, whether it is through training, big teams, or just uh, one-on-one coaching. How do I manage my energy? How do I manage my time? Once you learn these really practical psychological tools, to not only understand yourself, but to understand others and relate to them in a humane way. Because we're all, all of us, there's a child inside, right? And that child responds. The child gets triggered. The child gets excited. The child gets sad, anxious, what have you. Once you understand your own psychology, you can also understand other people's psychology. And then you can speak to them in their language. I think you mentioned that before. Yes. Leadership has a language. Absolutely. And each person, you need to be able to maintain your authenticity. Nobody's trying to change you, but learn how to wear different hats. Because if you cannot pivot as a leader, you are rigid. When you're rigid, you're breakable. And that is so incredibly important. But I really love what you just brought up because it brings me to one of the things that I'm truly passionate about. And that is, when do we start teaching leadership? When do we start self-development? What is the best age? What is the best time to teach leadership. And I truly believe it's in our childhood. 
we need to start reestablishing our educational system and educating our children with the concepts of leadership. One of them is growth mindset, understanding that learning happens in layers. And it's not the end product that demonstrates your success, but how efficiently you set up this process. Because as soon as you show up in the world, you want to take action towards something, you're not acting in a solo mission. There are so many forces applied to your mission. You know, there is nature, there is nurture, there are other people, there are circumstances, all sorts of things can happen. So once we teach our children from a very young age what it means to self-lead, what it means to be open to learning, what it means to have that growth mindset and believe in that effort is really, truly something that counts triple, not just double. (laughs) Then we get to set up our children for a life of leadership, whether it is for self or others, because it doesn't matter what your child is going to end up doing, whether they were, you know, accountant working on their own or a school teacher or shopkeeper, doctor, a nurse, a CEO, a coach, (laughs) a speaker, doesn't matter what it is that they're doing. If they don't know how to lead themselves, they're going to come in contact with other people. They won't be able to communicate. They won't be able to negotiate. They will not be able to build trust relationships. And that is how misery happens. And misery can happen to people who haven't accomplished much, but also to people who have accomplished a lot because they're missing the core skills that create self-fulfillment. And it all comes down to really being able to understand our own psychology. So I say we need to do something about that as well, about changing educational systems. So it's not just teaching mathematics and biology, but it's really teaching human skills in dealing with the world and setting our kids up for for reaching whatever it is they want they set their minds to. That's it. And as you're saying, these are skills that will bleed over into every other sphere of our existence and development. I wrote an article on LinkedIn long ago, and it was about... I was had a call with one of my clients and he said, actually, my wife wants to grab the phone. And I was, I said, okay. And she said, I can't thank you enough for bringing my husband back to me. <laughs> yes, and it was yeah. the whole idea that I've been working with him for a year, did a 360 eval. I was brutally honest with him because I was on the outside, was interviewing the other people to see areas that were areas that needed an improvement, that were weaknesses, so to speak. And then I really forced the issue and he was resistant initially. And then eventually it it got in as we talk about layers. And once he did that, and once he started listening to the the co-founder, the CFO, the CMO, started listening to his sales team, started listening to the other 50 employees, started realizing, wow, I don't know everything. It's like, no, you can't. Because to him, it was like, I have to know everything. It's like, there's too much stuff for you to know. What's important for you to know? What's the priority for you to know as the leader? And then when that allowed him, that gave him permission to not feel like he had to know everything and to say, listen, this is what we've built all this in. What are these like primary objectives that I need to be aware of? What are my APIs that are truly significant on almost like this dashboard of my life? And when he did that, all of a sudden he became more receptive to communication with his wife, with his kids. Of course. And then she said, not only has the business, she said exploded, it was reinvigorated in my mind. It continues to grow even to this day. But to her, she said the most important thing was not that bottom line, but that she could have a conversation with her husband 
it actually affected because their kids were all out of the house. They were at university, they were in college now, but they were holding on to this really large house because in his mind, this is what you're supposed to do. You're the successful business owner, blah, 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 blah. And to her, even when they had people coming to clean it, she says, it just feels empty. We don't have any kids here. We can bring family back for the holidays, but as we go on in life, we see they will get married. They will have their own families it's hard for them sometimes to get back. And then to be able to bring the whole family around again is very few and far between. So she was able to talk to him and say, we don't have to downsize to like a a 2000 foot home, but can we downsize a little bit to where it feels a little bit more like us, a little bit more intimate, like a home. home. Yeah. Because to her, because to her, she said it felt like a, a museum. It was very clean. It was very quiet. And it was very cold. Of course. Yeah, and, wow. and, to her. and just imagine what that does for the relationship. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. She says, we only live in a thousand square foot of this thing. Why do we have all this other stuff? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. He listened. They got a smaller home that they both loved. Didn't even consider that this was the kind of home that he wanted all along, but he didn't even wow. have the, the security to voice that. And now they have a, a smaller home, but they have more land. They can do all these things they want to do. And now magically... The kids and now the grandkids can't wait to go back out because they want to go out where it's so different. There's fresh air. It's so energy is different. All too. of that, right? Yeah. But again, it was just concrete bound to this thing, this mount, this testament to his ego. It doesn't allow us to have that ability. And now we can actually have that expectation reduced because we can say, this is what I want, not what I'm expecting other people to expect from me. And therefore, I have to play into that platitude. That is so true. I call it being stuck in a rut. Yes. You're also not even aware of it. Mm-hmm. So it's really about just standing still for a moment because I see this quite a lot in the high performers that I coach. High performers, by definition, have a psychology geared to continuous movement. But then I explain to them that performance has three levels, has three, it's like a triangle, it has three corners. And performance without the three corners is puh. Nothing's happening there. (laughs) You know, you're just, you're burning the candle on both ends because you have your preparation on one corner, bottom corner. You have your performance at the peak. And the other corner of this triangle is rest and recuperation. Most high performers, and generally speaking, you don't really succeed in life unless you have a performance mindset. So you are some sort of an athlete in life. Even if you've never been in sports, you do have that athletic mentality. I need to be striving, constantly moving towards the target. When they don't stand still in their lives, in rest and recuperation, you know, some of the CEOs I talk to, they say, I haven't taken a holiday in 10 years. And I'm thinking, are you proud of that? Is that a good thing? Or I took a holiday after two days, I had to go back to work again. You're proud of yourself for that. You think you're living a full dimensional life. And then they wonder why there are areas in their lives that they cannot feel satisfaction with because you've created all this success. You're sitting at the top of your mountain. Your first mountain, by the way, because the second one has a completely different meaning. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> but you're feeling dif- you're feeling like something is not right. You're not really satisfied. So, you know, they say, oh, I'm going through midlife crisis and it's happening in their 30s. I'm saying, well, these are just crises and you're going to go through it many times yes. if you ignore the triangle. You cannot ignore the rest and reset because if you're doing that, truly doing that and standing still for a moment, 
unafraid that you're falling behind because there is no such thing. You build such momentum that you should be able to allow yourself that rest and recuperation. Then you get to reassess things and create a strategy moving forward. Again, yes, growth needs to be an evolutionary process that cannot just be controlled from all dimensions, but there needs to be strategy involved in that as well. Otherwise, you're like this ejected bullet without a name, or maybe there is a name, but you're missing out on a lot of other things as well. Personal life, relationships, quality of life, downtime, and then what happens after you are done climbing all of these mountains? Do you ever think about that? Because there's going to be a point where you want to do something different. You can't just continuously be doing this. This is like drinking from the fire hose. You do have to stop at a certain moment. Absolutely. <laughs> or, do, or do something different than that. But they don't stand still to realize that. And those are the moments where they get into those fixed mindsets, stuck in a rut mentality, and lives, their lives suffer. Relationships fall apart. Marriages fall apart. That's so unfortunate. It's so unnecessary. It, it is unnecessary, like you say, because if we work with that emotional and personal development and we grow it along with these other skill sets in business, in leadership, in you know communications, they will all move up in parallel. The other thing that is so unfortunate is seeing often on verb, it's about actions and not words, but sometimes the action that we need most is inaction. Inaction, absolutely. Sometimes we have to step back and all these things that we're doing based on action those decisions that we make to take those actions need to be done from this place of stillness, this place of silence, because that's when we actually hear what's going on. And when you can do that, it allows you to be aware of these things. So again, we're not just continually sharpening the blade again with athletes. What do we see if they think they have to work seven days a week, you know, three hours a day to, to get to this place. It's like, you're going to burn yourself out. You're going to get injured. And then when you're injured, you're going to be pissed off that you're injured. And then you're, if your default answer to everything is to push harder and now you're injured, what are you going to do? It's going to become chronic. You're not going to show up to the best version of yourself in that competition. Or if it's a fight, you're not going to be able to fight to the best of your ability. And when you show up, you're showing up as this 70 to 75% version of who you could be when in actuality, if you're the warrior sipping on the ring, you need to be as close to 100% as you possibly can. And then the psychology, right? I'm doing everything that I possibly can and I got hurt. This isn't fair. Why did I get hurt? I'm doing everything right. Well, again, if we have the ability to step back and look at it from this mushin, this Japanese idea of no mind and detach and say, I am giving everything that I can and I got hurt. So is that still true? Was giving more the answer? Is sharpening my blade until it goes blunt really what I need to be doing now? Exactly, exactly. And for me, my life... Before I was injured, that's what I was doing. I was pushing hard. And then at 40, being paralyzed, dying on the table, being forced to do nothing else other than for four months, sit in a bed and look at my life. Right? And, and I can yeah. be very honest. There's no way I would have taken that amount of time to self-introspection no. without that. And Forced to do it. I was, and which makes it even harder. <laughs> I, I, I think you know I, I was suicidal, but I couldn't act on it. So all this stuff is here. And now what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? And that's when the real journey begins. So when you feel like you've reached this pinnacle of success or when you feel stuck, that's not the end of the road. That's the beginning. And that's when you learn who you are. And that's when you're stripped down to everything that you, to your brass tacks. That's what diversity does. It burns away all the stuff that we're not. 
all the bullshit, all the pretense, all the stuff that we've believed or other people have heaped upon us. And we get back to where that is. And when you're in that place, usually from a place of stillness, now you can begin to see, hmm, maybe I'm going the wrong direction. Maybe this is not the right time. And if you have the people around you that actually care, whether it be a person that's on your team, a person that's in your company, or hopefully you build relationships, then they will be honest enough to give you that and say, yeah, I don't know why it took you so long to get to this place, but I'm glad that you see it now. Very true. And that's where trust comes in again. There it is. Absolutely. If we don't build that trust, we're not going to be able to really engage and listen to people around us. But it all starts with self-trust. That's it. That's exactly you know, it. And I, I, I always refer to it as a toolbox. Mm-hmm. Say, even if you're not handy, you do know what the concept of a toolbox is, right? Absolutely. Sometimes it's a nail. Sometimes it's a screw. You All you got is a hammer. Everything's a nail if you only got it. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you, you say, I'm doing everything in my power, but all you're doing is using a hammer in every situation. And that's the moment where you really get to stand still. And I really love what you just said. Reminds me of, um, you said, you know, washing away the things that don't matter. The Bhagavad Gita, they refer to it as dukkha. Mm-hmm. Wash away the dukkha. You know, there's, there's a layer of gunk on top of this information, that uh, on top of these skills that we think we have mastered. But the gunk is actually preventing all of these skills from shining, yes. like the like the story in the the Buddha, the golden Buddha mm, covered the with mud. Yeah, the mud. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The hero's journey. If you don't get to a point to stand still, to really create that state of no mind, and I know you love meditation, and I I, I love watching your walking meditations because I do this myself uh, all the time as well. If you don't get yourself to that moment of stillness, where you really truly come face to face with all of those ideologies that are actually fixations stuck in the rutness, patterns of thinking that really, in most cases, don't serve us at every level of life. We need to be evolving our way of thinking, our way of speaking, our way of relating, our way of seeing the life that is waiting for us. Because at your 20s, you have an idea. In your 30s, it should be different if you're evolving. Yes. And then in your 40s, it should be different if you're evolving. And you should be evolving because the human being without evolution is a dead human being, really. So standing still serves so many purposes. And when we're talking about leadership, when leaders are able, they're equipped with the capacity to, in a peaceful manner, say, I'm going to step back and let them do this. Let them, trust them to do what is necessary. You get to step back. You're not standing still. You're reflecting. You're observing. You're listening. You're paying attention. You're detecting opportunity. You're strategizing. You're doing all sorts of things. So it's not a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that really needs to change in the mindset of leadership because inability to stand still is actually the inability to fully self-lead. You cannot always be running. You cannot always be running after the fact. You cannot be always putting out fires. You cannot always be striving. It makes us vigilant and rigid, not flexible and and fluid, which is so necessary for being able to maneuver the challenge and change that comes our way, which we are not in control of. Happens in our lives, but also happens in leadership. It, It absolutely does. And I'm was asking you before, and we've talked about so many things already, and I, I love what we've done. What is the worst piece of advice that you see in this area 
and you're smiling because I was mentioning before we record that you and I have done this long enough to where we actually see patterns repeating that other people have not seen, where they don't have the self-introspection to at least recognize it when it's happening and right in front of them. So what would be a piece of advice that you hear continually repeated that is just not only is it wrong, but it's actually uh, harmful in many ways? Absolutely. So I, I, as soon as you asked that question, I had my answer immediately <laughs> because this is something that really gets me, really gets me. <laughs> I'm not going to use any French words here, but it really gets me. <laughs> I love, I love what Brene does. You know, sometimes she swears and I want to be able to do it too, but I still hesitate sometimes. Sure. But this really gets my goat. <laughs> it's smart goals. I cannot stand them. <laughs> Because back in the day, 20 years ago, we were focusing on smart goals, but because we were very... And I know what a smart goal is, but can you tell us oh, yes, what the, yeah, say. tell everybody what that means, what the, they all stand for, and under, that way they can better understand it? Because again, for some people, they may not know what that is. That's a new concept for them, right? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for saying sure. that. Because it, it's it's such a overused concept yes. to you immediately assume that everybody knows, but let's break it down. Smart goals are a concept of... It's a, it's a theory applied to setting goals that is an acronym for specific, measurable, attainable. Uh, the R stands for uh, realistic, realistic yeah. and time-bound. Yes. So when we talk about specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound, all we're doing is we're looking externally. Mm. We're just looking at outside measures for success. Nobody's really talking about what we have been learning over the last decade, and that is that unless you shift your psychology, your self-identity, goals will not be realized. So instead of goal setting with SMART goals, we should be working on goal realization, which means what do you need to change about yourself to make achieving your goals possible? So not just saying... Uh, what is measurable? So the 2 million in two years, <laughs> yep. it's got to happen. 2 million in two years, attainable, you know, realistic and time bound. So when they talk about realistic, they say, okay, so if I have this person doing this and that person doing that, and this is the amount of time I'm putting in, so it's going to happen, right? Wrong. It's not going to happen. How many of us set New Year's resolutions with the SMART goals? <laughs> yeah. And halfway through the year, not even halfway through through the year, by February, the smart goals go out of the window. I actually work with goal setting for organizations as well. And this is my passion project. I really integrate not smart goal setting, but growth goal setting. Mm. So how do I need to grow to make this thing happen? How do I need to grow? So it's not just about, yes, create the strategy as well important. You do want to be specific about those other details, but you have to always address how do I need to change? Whose help do I need? And what's going to be possible within my capacity? And when things don't go right, what could be my responsibility in that? Instead of saying, yeah, that person rejected me and this thing didn't work out because that person didn't show up and do what they were supposed to do. So now I can't accomplish my goal. And that's that's just not right. We know too much about what our share of responsibility is in succeeding in life, truly accomplishing and growing beyond our last found capacity. Self-realization is our mission in life, right? 
So understanding how our identity and the shift in identity contributes to that takes away a lot of insecurities, helps us realize that growth is a process. And when you are dedicated to creating the process as much as creating the outcome, the outcome will come. It will come. There are not two ways about it. You focus on the process. And then once in a while, gauge, where am I? Revise your plan. That's okay. But it cannot just be the SMART goals. Yeah, they're too, dare I say, superficial, and they're too thin. They're too thin, surface level. Surface level. And how many people do we know? uh, Again, like you said, the New Year's resolution, I talk about that as well. It's sad because there will be a, a time when somebody will try a New Year's resolution for the last time. For the last time, yeah. And if I don't do it this year, then... I guess I'm just going to be like this. And that's a very, it's sad to see that that self-defeated, yeah, that self-defeated mentality, that that almost victim-like mentality is like, well, it didn't happen, so I'm going to do this. And again, we we love Jerry Colonna, where he has that question where he says, how have I been complicit in allowing these things to continue that I say that I don't want? So again, if we're trying to do this goal and we're saying, well, this, I was pushed back on this, so I'm going to, so that's it. It's like, no. Every goal that we have, every mission that we have, every track that we're on is going to have multiple, I mean, multiple Masashi, multiple, there are many paths at the top of the mountain. We have to be able to go around it. It doesn't mean that we completely give up the goal, but we have to say, okay, am I willing and do I have enough faith and humility to step back? Not, not just one step back, sometimes hundreds of meters back. Hundreds of meters back, absolutely. But when we do that, all of a sudden, that changes the perspective and we're like, Well, if I would have looked up in the process of doing this, I would have seen that this is going to lead to this huge cavern that there's no way I can get to. I can actually go around this. I can circumvent this. But again, without that initial obstacle, so to speak, to push us back, we never would have gotten to that place. And that's where adversity oftentimes, it's everything. It's everything. Yeah. And for people that we coach and for a person like yourself, you are a very high level performer, high-level athlete, high-level coach, and and leader and teacher, I see a direct correlation to the amount of adversity somebody has experienced, processed, and gone through, and their level of success. As a matter of fact, I don't know anybody that's reached a high level of success that has not done that. And lots of times they try to seek out and embrace adversity every day so that they can continue to use that as a form of elevation. Can you tell us about uh, an adversity that you faced in your life? In anywhere, whether it be professional, personal, whatever, that at that time you were like, I don't think I'm going to be able to ever get through this. But on the other side, you look back and you said, wow, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be the woman that I am today. That's a good question. I'm going to quote Esther Perel here and say, where do I begin? (laughs) Begin at the beginning. (laughs) And which one of them do I use? I truly believe that it was, if it wasn't for the adversities in my life, I wouldn't be here today. And I know it sounds a little cliche. We hear it so, we hear it so often. Oh, that person is a product of their hardship. It really is true. It's not cliche. It's a fact. Why? Because human beings by nature are stubborn. We are stubborn and we need to be stubborn to create our self-identity. You start seeing it in a one-year-old, you know, and they want things their way. And of course, we, we sometimes we should give in, other times we should discipline. But it's very important to realize that human beings by nature are very stubborn creatures. And sometimes you need that friction, you need that intensity and, and adversity to be able to, first of all, 
look yourself in the eye and take responsibility. Yes. Because nothing, if you think that any adversity happens in life beyond your capacity and involvement, you are a victim. That's just a fact. And trust me, I have almost lost my life a few times. I've had some major horrific traumas happen in my life. And I still say I had a share in it as well. It was either my soul's calling to it or it was because I was stubborn. I had several concussions when I was, uh, was, when I was an athlete. And then I got an overhydration on top of that. I almost lost my life to overhydration. Wow. Why? I was so dead set on getting that title national champion, so dead set on that, that I couldn't see anything. I could not see the flaws in my process. Fixation was driving me. Obsession was driving me. And obsession is not a bad thing, but obsession without awareness is dangerous. So adversity happens. Sometimes our souls call for it. Other times, our human mind set us, set us up for it. And either way, it's a growth process. There has never been a single adversity in my life. And Marcus, I got to tell you, I mean, for me, it started when I was not even born. When I was in my mother's stomach, there was a lot of, there were a lot of issues. My parents had major marital issues and my father was incredibly abusive. So my mother was in constant stress. So that's where my first adverse, adversity started. It has really shaped the direction of my life. And the last one was a 10-year depression that nearly took my life and ended not so long ago, actually. But never once have I gone through adversity and thought, why me? I've always asked, what is this trying to teach me? So I never, ever, have never felt like I don't have what it takes. I don't know how I'm going to go through this because I know innately, and I knew it as a child as well, with all the hardship that I've gone through, there was something always inside of me that said, this too shall pass. You are strong enough to handle this. And with just a little bit of elbow grease and a whole lot of faith, you can get yourself out of any situation. I have a glass half full mentality, and that's really carried me through life. And it's not excessive optimism. It's measured skepticism, a little dose of optimism, and a lot of reflection, strategic thinking, and also this undying faith that everything always works out. So I've never been hesitant when adversity hit. I always knew everything was going to get better. And it always did. Sometimes it took a short period and other times it takes 10 years. <laughs> but eventually everything works out for the best. And that's that's what we have to keep doing. And just putting one foot in front of the other is all we have to do. But sometimes in that moment, it feels like that may even be beyond our realm of possibility. As you were saying too, we have to have this belief that whatever we're facing, we have whatever it takes to overcome it. But if we're blocking it somehow, if we're not giving enough, if we're resisting because I don't want to do this or it's not fair or why me, I had all those thoughts. I was like, I'm a good person. I've done all these things. I'm doing all this for the right reasons. And eventually we have to understand that the only meaning that diversity has is the meaning that we assign it. We give to it. That's it. Absolutely. So true. If we don't label it and say, this is what it means. This is what I'm going to do because the event is neutral. Yes. 
it's it's our perception it is, that's colored. That's it. The, the events neutral, the events done. This is what's happened. What am I going to do now? Well, that wasn't fair. That's that's fine. It wasn't fair. What do you do now? Well, blah, blah, blah. Great. What are you going to do moving forward? Because the sooner we do that, we get through denial. We get all the way down to acceptance quickly, efficiently. And if we're a peak performer, if we're a leader, if we're trying to be the best version of ourselves as we can be, the sooner that we can go from denial to genuine acceptance and don't gaslight ourselves into this fake bullshit optimism, right? <laughs> yes. When we can have that, that practical, like, this is where we're going, that's what we have to have. And that's what allows us to continue to get through. And once we're on the other side of it, when we look back, we can see those gaps. We can see where yeah. I'm making this harder than it needs to be. I'm resisting this unnecessarily. I'm justifying my existence in this area of being the victim. And the thing is, once we look back and we can see that, like from a, a true detached motion kind of idea, yeah. without judgment, without beating ourselves up. Yeah. Now we can see, see for what it is. Musashi says, it's not what we hope it'll be. It's not what we wish it will be. It's what's, what it really is. What it really is. Absolutely. You can't find reality. You will lose, but a hundred percent of the time. That's it. That's everything. So. <laughs> and then you choose. I'm either going to try and control reality and lose, or I'm going to change my perception. I'm going to change the way I look at this situation because, Marcus, it was never that I didn't feel pain. Of course I did. Tremendous pain. I've been where you are, you know, being paralyzed and not knowing where is life going to take me? What's going to happen to me now? I was 15 years old, 15 years old when I was paralyzed on the left side of my body, completely uh -huh. couldn't move. I had a car accident that was really severe and really damaged my body badly. And I remember laying there, okay, I'm 15. Who's going to marry me now? Oh. <laughs> Am I ever going to find a partner? Who's going to want to be with a crippled? <laughs> so there are moments where you come face to face with that humility yes. and uh, your survival instincts, but also this human side of you that actually wants things to be fluid and easy and you know, rose-colored, and now all of a sudden, you're not in that situation. You're in the total opposite of it. And then even in that moment, I would always... So my mother has been a big influence on my upbringing. Um, she's been instrumental. And she always says, oh, I wasn't there enough because she was always working. But she was there enough in the right moments to influence me. And she always used to say to me, who needs you today? Who needs you today? I need you today. I need you today. I need you. I need you to get yourself back up. I need your strength today. And from a you know a modern perspective, if you say parents say that to a child, they say, "Oh, that's child abuse." I don't think so. I think there is nothing more beautiful than teaching a child that you don't just live for yourself. You're a part of a community. You're a part of a family. Your energy affects everybody else as well. And you can be strong for us. We will be strong for you. And we work together. So she always used to say to me, who needs you today? When, when I was in the depth of sorrow, you know, just riddled with infections all over my body, the digestive system was failing me, you know, it's just really horrible state. And she'd say, who needs you today? And I would think of my little brother that was looking to me to set an example for him going through hardship or my mother having a really hard time, you know, trying to make ends meet, father not being there. So he, she has to pick up all the slack. So I knew there were people around me that needed me. So no matter what state I was in, I would always try to find even an 
ounce of strength to just show up for them as well. And that gave me a sense of purpose to really keep going. When adversity hits, you got to keep going. You just got to keep going. And it's just there to teach you something really beautiful about yourself and about the world you live in. And if you embrace it that way, then uh, sooner or later, growth happens and you get to become an influence on others, which is a really powerful tool as well. Make an impact in the world in big and small ways. Couldn't agree more. Bahar, where can we learn more about you? We can follow you on LinkedIn. Can you tell us about your website? Can you tell us about your, your coaching, your programs, what you have available to us? Because people that have heard this conversation want to learn more about what you do in the Alexander Method. So where would you direct them? Thank you for that. Uh, they can find me on the website, the, uh, www.alexandermtd.com. That's the best place to find me. You can also schedule calls with me. I also have the option for just the short uh, free calls that people can take to just ask questions if they want to know about more about me, about what I do. The LinkedIn page is also a very effective way to find me. Bahar Alexander is the LinkedIn um, name. And what I currently am doing is working with organizations, companies, so mostly tailored around leadership and organizational cultures and performance. But I've done life coaching for a very long time. And that's also very dear to me. So when you go to my website, you will see the three levels of coaching for self-development. And the first level is really going into self-awareness. The second level is building your skills to enter the world as a leader. And the last level is to really maximize your leadership. And that's fifth level leadership. So you can find more information on the website for that. But I also do a lot of organizational coaching and all the information is on the website for that. I do children's coaching as well, but you won't be able to find that on the on the <laughs> on the website. If you are curious, if anybody is curious about how to develop their children's leadership capacity from a young age, they can reach out to me for that as well. I I love catching them early. <laughs> uh, I think that we definitely need more of that in the world. So thank you for everything that you've done and. I've known you for years and it's an honor to get to finally connect with you here. And as I said before, I, I can't wait till I'm on that side of the world and get to give you a big hug and, and meet you in person. So thank you for everything you're doing. It would be wonderful to meet you, Marcus. Thank you so much for providing this platform to share my message and to spar with you. I really love this conversation. It was more like a like, like soundboarding with each other and sparring Absolutely. ideas with each other. And I really love that. Uh, so thank you for this. And I look forward to meeting you and giving you a big hug when I see you here in, uh, in my neck of the woods. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media.